Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. All right. Tahusians assemble. Are you there, Reverend? Oh, we'll uh, we'll just do audio. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I, it's a different kind of conversation. Um, I think a lot of people have noticed that, right? Uh, it's uh, different. You you live more in your head. You're less distracted by your eyes. How are you? Definitely true. I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. <clears throat> are we ready to burn the occult world down? <laughs> yeah let's go you said that to me on on uh, facebook of course and i was like oh i don't know about that but uh after yesterday i'm sort of thinking why not let's just burn it all down see what's left and after yesterday what happened yesterday oh just the drama that's ongoing in the occult world and you know all of that sort of thing i mean you're probably not a stranger to the uh the pettiness that can can exist that you know people get up to well i uh don't associate with any sort of an <coughs> for Sorry. that very reason but uh i do know from the uh exciting world of the uh ghost hunting community that uh i think any organized group of people is going to allow in a certain amount of drama Sorry, I just muted myself because the sirens were going by. Yeah, it's 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 something I've noticed my whole life. I I saw it in the in the TM Maharishi community as a kid growing up in that and in in Waldorf School, Golden Dawn. Then I saw it in seminary in the Christian world and you know then corporate worlds and it's just a human thing, right? But but it's definitely seems there's a susceptibility with religious and spiritual communities to have a certain kind of toxicity that can flare up a bit more sinister than in some other spheres i don't know if you can relate well the spiritual community implies you're tapping into something beyond humanity so it would only be natural that the drama would be a little bit more intense yeah yeah i guess especially that makes sense uh like the the, the person who is giving me grief uh yesterday i mean he i know for a fact the kinds of things he invokes and they're all very dark demonic entities like he's he goes he goes for as much evil lucifer stuff as he can and and gleefully so it's like that makes sense that if you're gonna invoke that stuff and want to you emulate you want to emulate being like satan um you might not treat people so well yeah specifically satan lucifer stuff would sort of imply uh, a desire to avoid drama right you think so i think but to some of these people yeah. those things they these, a lot of these people aren't quite necessarily all there mentally you know and uh they uh don't see yeah they don't see these distinctions they just want evil and power you know they want and, image. i maintain that most of the people in this community probably don't actually do that much uh like hands-on work 
They mostly just sit behind their keyboards and they tell other people they're stupid. <laughs> kind of part of the reason why I want to sort of avoid all of that stuff. I mean, I certainly want to show people what I'm doing, what I'm doing works, and I want other people to have these experiences. But at the same time, I don't want any of that. I want this community to be separated from all of that. Yeah, that's something I was very interested to get into with you. Um, both, I mean, we have this connection, you and I, as as sort of devotees of Tehuti. Uh, you you prefer the Jehuti pronunciation, correct? Uh, it just kind of depends. Jehuti has a nicer sort of mouth feel. Yeah, it looks nicer to write on a page. Uh, Tehuti is probably a little bit more accurate, and it has a better rhythm. So it's kind of just. Uh, however I'm feeling in the moment. Amen to that. It sounds like, yeah, that, I think you have the absolutely right approach there. Um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the multiplicity of names. It, it actually just makes for more interesting and colorful invocational work in my experience. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm teaching a class and we'll talk about it probably in the interview proper, but- This is the interview. Oh, for real? Oh, for yeah. Real. Well, then I'll tell you about it right now. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you're you're alive on Magic Without Fears, where we just sort of go at it. Oh, right on. I'm teaching yeah. a class at Blackthorn School, and actually, this week's focus um, is about the various god names. Um, people have this idea that religious devotion to an ancient god has to be locked away in the past. So they strive to mimic what was done thousands of years ago without realizing these uh, long invocations, these long prayers usually have a name associated with them. I mean, the authors usually signed their names. So all the, all the people thousands of years ago were doing was writing prayers to their gods. It's nothing we can't do now using our own epithets, um, you know, the way we see God in our world is probably vastly different than the way they saw uh, their gods, but there's no reason why we can't celebrate those differences utilizing epithets we artfully create ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. I started. Oh, I'm sorry. What's that? No, no. I, I started in like a, in a, in a Wicca Druid kind of landscape myself when I was like 13, you know, so I was making up my own rituals and ceremonies from the get-go. I wasn't necessarily that thrilled by what I saw in the stuff like Scott Cunningham and the other sources. There wasn't that much in the early 90s really compared to today. But yeah, you have to make your own rituals. And that's that's to this day been one of my favorite parts of magic is taking pieces together, putting them into ceremonies and seeing how they work. Yeah, I mean, by all means, rooted in tradition. I mean, show that there's a continuation of practice but uh ooh, druidry there really isn't a whole lot right left yeah um, so i guess you really don't have that much of an option <laughs> it's a tricky one and and that is that was very much the lack of content in those realms was very much what led me to the the golden dawn and and learning traditional practices and it really did help with giving me the language and rubrics to then create more in a much more powerful way yeah and i mean creation in and of itself people get hung up on uh you know ritual 
and formality when again in reality that's just something the passage of that's an illusion the passage of time establishes there certainly were formal ceremonies performed but if you read firsthand accounts i mean in egypt anyway scribes performed ritual just by practicing the written word or by copying down uh you know their day-to-day lives in the written word writing was a ritual in and of itself uh oh. so i actually I've kind of forgotten why i started bringing that up i'm sorry uh, a continuity of tradition and, and uh you know just bringing old practices into new contexts is what it sounded like oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and the act of of writing these rituals is quite magical and now a word from our sponsors While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Yeah, I agree. But again, it doesn't have to be anything too far out there. It could be whatever, like one of the projects I'm currently working on. Whoops, I should probably mute my phone. Hold on. One of the projects I'm currently working on is a sort of um, Oracle deck, I guess. Okay. Um, I can't, I don't know how many epithets it's going to be. It's going to be at least 69. I might do more but yeah um epithets of tahuti all of which i've come up with myself some of which i've come up with through scrying or the first occultist i ever fell in love with was austin osmond spare so i do a lot of automatic writing and drawing oh yeah I come doing that play. uh but once i get on once i've gotten all of the epithets figured out I actually just uh, yesterday started talking to somebody who wants to illustrate all of them. Wow. He was telling he's not super comfortable with the uh, the idea of ritual and prayer. And I told him, you know, just that your ritual is the act of getting into a meditative state and creating visual art. So that inspired him. So we've kind of taken off. So I have no experience publishing any sort of a tarot or oracle deck but uh i feel almost reckless everything i've wanted to do in the last two years i just continuously talked about it happening and then it has i wrote (laughs) a book that's been extremely well received that has already kind of branched off all over the world um the success of that book has brought me two more books yeah it's a gorgeous book i really hope i can get a copy before it's too late it's a beautiful yeah, book. Definitely the standard Let, edition of the book. Yeah, there are well, two above that, I can't even believe it. Well, those those sold out instantly, I think, right? Yeah, I've spent yeah. my whole entire life writing stuff, and the last fifteen years, especially, trying to get people locally to pay any sort of attention to what I'm writing. And it's always, I live in a relatively conservative part of the country, um, so I mean, it's been dismissed in large part or within the art community that we have locally, it's just uh, sort of drowned out by the cacophony of everyone believing their art 
is worthy of being the center of attention. Um, but it's been largely ignored. And I just kind of turned away from my hometown and presented it to the world. And now it's taking on a life of its own. It's so wild. Something yeah. I'm deeply grateful for, something <clears throat> I'm humbled for. For people listening, let's give them a quick idea of what the book is out that you have right now so they can go grab it. Yeah, well, I just published the book of Flesh and Feather through Thayen Publishing. That's T-H-E-I-O-N. Um, but then uh, you know, on April 2nd, the pre-orders for my next book uh, open, and that's the Litanies of Thought. The Book of Flesh and Feather is sort of, um, I guess, sort of like a hyper sigil, if you will. Um, it is supposed to be, collectively, the words are supposed to be an action. It's supposed to be the beginning of ritual worship, and it's supposed to be an offering to Tahuti. Um, and so it's also sort of an initiation experience. The litanies of thought um, are 365 prayers that I wrote uh, in sort of a state of divine inspiration over the course of about three days. Um, and then it's got uh, two calendars in it, various holy days marked. Um, and then it also serves a number of divination purposes as well. So it'll be probably the most useful book I have on my shelves. And on top of that, it'll be relatively small in size. So it'll be able to fit in a backpack, which I mean, I've spent a good chunk of my life living out of backpacks. So that's something I appreciate personally. Yeah, big time. But then after that, everything I have accomplished, I have accomplished through a relationship and deep devotion to Tehuti. But I have also done it uh, by through a process that I refer to simply as naturism, uh, which is sort of an all-encompassing term for the uh, veneration of Tehuti or you know whatever god, um, as well as a magical praxis as well. Um, after Litanies comes out, probably next year or the year after that, the book about the magical praxis that I practice that has gotten me these books, that has introduced me to all of these people, that's going to come out. So it's just uh, not only is everything looking up in the distant future, but I've got stuff happening in the far off future. I've got a reason to continue doing it. It's uh, it's certainly a first for me personally. <clears throat> that's awesome. Yeah. And you just answered uh, my listener question. Foolish Fish asked me to ask you about your, your next book. So yeah, there you go, Foolish Fish. Love you, dude. Oh, man. Foolish Fish is a listener. The Foolish Fish from YouTube? Yeah, you know, he actually said he would uh, pop onto the podcast for a cameo with us today, but he just got too swamped. So maybe next oh, time, maybe next time we'll have uh, you back and he'll jump in and we'll do a video thing and all goof off. I would off like together. to work with him eventually. I cannot believe he's too busy unboxing things, man. <laughs> I know it's incredible. It's all I he actually does. only learned about him a few days before he reviewed my book. Oh, wow. Um, he reviewed uh, a, a new collection um, of uh, Emanuel Swedenborg's work. Uh, I love Emanuel Swedenborg, and I love everything that sort of, sort of grew out of his practice. 
Ah, um, interesting. I never I got into him, even though I tried a little bit. Oh, he's... What, what do you love about... Can you sell me on Swedenberg? Can I sell you on yeah, Swedenborg? try and sell me on Swedenborg. Uh, well, he was a guy who ran around with some pretty... Uh, uh was an elitist type of people and then one day at a fancy dinner party he ate so much food that he lapsed into a sort of coma uh and while he was under he encountered these angels who introduced themselves and then became a part of his life he interacted with them a few times they showed him uh the various components of the heavens and the soul they took him to other planets um, wow. And then on top of that, they gave him his exact date and time of death. Oh, so nice. they kind of also told him, like, this is when you expire. You've got a lot of work to do. So he started writing, and uh, <clears throat> the Swedenborg movement sort of uh, swelled and got really psychedelic. Uh, and then, sure enough, he died exactly when he said he was going to die. Uh, after his death, um, are you familiar with phrenology? unfortunately it yeah it's a bunk science um which yeah yeah um but it's for those, kind of the, for those young the, listeners who don't know it's the study of the human skull shapes and was used to uh do some bad things to uh black slaves in american history they talk about it in django unchained uh what's his name leonardo dicaprio is a big fan of phrenology in django unchained anyway that's for uh, we have some listeners, I'm sure, who are, you know, he's still new to the world. Yeah, well, it's completely, it's not based in any sort of real, true, that's actually sort of an interesting point about science, for that matter, how arbitrary it often is. Uh, <laughs> it's not based on anything yes. real. It's completely false. But at any rate, though, a phrenologist decided to dig up Emanuel Swedenborg's grave. Oh, no. And remove his skull. And, uh, oh, so no. He Several years later, he felt bad about it. So he dug up the grave a second time to replace the skull. <laughs> found that there was a different skull already in the grave. What? So he just sort of held on to the skull. Uh, and then it got lost to time. And it turned out to be auction. And I think it sold for like 125,000 pounds or something like that. Oh, my God. I know. Dude, that's insane. So how did another skull get into the coffin? Uh, my guess is another phrenologist <laughs> dug down the steel of the skull, found it empty, and just kind of put his own in there. Oh, God. I know. That's, it's that's ridiculous. An eccentric life. It says something about the kinds of people who were phrenologists, that's for sure. Well, that yeah, that's for sure. Phrenologists also stole, I think it was Mozart, Bach, oh, and as well. Um, you'd be surprised who's underground without a skull. Oh, oh God. Uh, that's kind of my goal in life is to reach. I don't necessarily want You to want someone you know, to dig up your skull when you die to prove how yeah, influential I you are? I want to be, you know, Aleister Crowley famous or anything like that. I want to be just well known enough for somebody to steal my head when I die. <laughs> that's the best thing anyone's ever told me. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, then... That will be proof that you successfully mastered the headless right. Oh, no, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Although, to be clear, I have to learn how to see out of my feet. Yes, which, well, you know, having sight in the feet. Right, but I haven't gotten down. But mm -hmm. at any rate, though, um, 
yeah, Swedenborg was a psychedelic guy. Uh, and on top of that, even though he has sort of like the topography of the afterlife and he's presented sort of like uh, laws to the afterlife, it's a relatively open religion. I mean, you can make, it basically just encourages people to explore their own spirituality and make it whatever they need it to be. Um, it's kind of interesting. One of Swedenborg's most devoted, um, not patrons, but uh, like practitioners, I guess, um, was a man named uh, um, John Chapman. And most people know him by his uh, sort of mythical name, Johnny Appleseed, a mm -hmm. uh, real guy. And he was walking across the country barefoot with Emanuel Swedenborg's writing tied to the top of his head. So he was a wandering uh, preacher, basically. Well, yeah, I, I, we definitely had a lot of, uh, you know, kids' story books read to us when we were kids about Johnny Appleseed, and then there's the song and all that. But I had no idea he walked around with Swedenborg's writings attached to his head. Yeah, they leave that out of all of the children's right. books, but I think <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the best part of the whole story. It is. It really is. Children, he would take these big pins, these big needles, and shove them into the soles of his feet. And that was entertaining to children. Whoa. Although, to be fair, I'm pretty sure people will probably Google that after hearing me say it to see if there are currently videos. So I guess it probably still works. Wow. That's incredible. Jeez. Oh, my God. So much, so much uh, craziness in the, these, these older characters that we uh, hear about. I don't, I don't know if occultists living today are half as interesting. Um, Except maybe know, the people, slightly deranged ones. Yeah, you kind of, I think, have to have a little bit of lunacy uh, to practice most of what we say we do anyway. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, I try to part, save it for the ritual work, you know, and, and especially, you know, working with spirits, working, uh, doing invocational work. There's a lot of calls for uh, ecstasy and exuberance in a lot of those works. And that stuff uh, is rightfully somewhat nutty to anyone if they were to see it from the outside. But when you're on the inside, it makes a lot of sense when you're drawing down spirits and doing magic. My uh, ritual structure is usually sort of uh, a state of ecstasy. Um, I'm sure it's very uh, loud. And if I'm, I make the joke, I can hear my neighbors having sex. I'm positive they can hear me in here chanting. And mm -hmm. uh, can't imagine what they must think is going on. But I definitely uh, agree, though, that uh, getting the heart rate going, sweating, and uh, getting sort of uh, chaotic is, is crucial to pulling your intentions out of the universe. I agree. To fabricate what you want before you, you have to first get all of the pieces uh, flying around, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking in my class yesterday. We were looking at some Kabbalistic forms of like hit bodedut and stuff like that. And the practice of just uh, intellectually discussing the Kabbalah, or as they looked at it in certain uh, schools of Kabbalah, especially uh, the Aries, was they would achieve ecstasy, of course, just by conversing about the, the different realms. The idea was the more they talked about these realms and, you know, the rabbis would sit down and have a glass of brandy and they would do Kabbalah, they would dialogue. And it was just an intellectual, theoretical 
kind of prayer that did lead them to radical forms of ecstasy, just this yeah. intellectual practice. Meditation and, and spirituality aren't always sitting still and chanting Om. Yeah, I think uh, to the point you just made, I think a much more, see, people think everything is just specially trained people have to do these things, but yeah. there are oftentimes uh, much more familiar forms of the same exact practice. So while you say there are these priests conversing intellectually, reaching a state of ecstasy, rabbis, uh, probably, what's that? Yeah, rabbis. Rabbis, it is. Yeah. Uh, but I think probably a much more familiar form of that same exact practice uh, would be um, think back to childhood and you're all either, uh, you know, in a haunted house or you're around a campfire or something and you're telling ghost stories and there's sort of this natural progression where it starts off with just some casual story about seeing a ghost and then somebody has to sort of one-up that, somebody mm -hmm. ones up that person and it just gets, it builds and builds. That's exactly the same as what those rabbis were doing, just in a different context with different, with a different purpose. Mm. I like that. Yeah, if we contextualize that the practice, it, it makes a lot of sense in that context. And you feel it when you if you sit around in a ghost circle storytelling thing, especially out camping around a campfire, there's an energy that builds. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, that's very, very interesting. So you're 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 uh, focusing on on building a, a group. Well, no, tell me what you mean. I want to know what you meant when you said to me in text about burning down the whole occult world and, and building something new. I, I, I know you meant that in a certain way, in a certain context, and I want to explore that. Where are you um, coming from? What's going on? How do you see a culture and, and your place in it? Well, this might be sort of a controversial thing to say. That's You're in the right place for that. Yeah, when I first got into this community, I had already I had already been reading about this community for 20 years, but I never made the leap into it because it always seemed so far out there, you know what I mean? Uh, but when I actually finally did step into these circles, I started to realize that uh, when I was on the outside of them, most of these people's practices were exclusively for them right mm -hmm. uh these fraternal orders everything was a secret um john d that was only for basically three people that whole entire i mean there's a whole entire there's count there's so many there's so much merchandise now but all of that stems from just what three people were doing basically well, um they what they brought forth you know d wasn't was told he wasn't allowed to use the enochian system right that he was bringing it for yeah, it forth was, for uh, others Right. He was, uh, was he arrested for that or was that, uh, Kelly was arrested, but that, that was complicated. That's, you know, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, that, that, no one knows when that happened. That happened before Kelly was known and written about. That's why he would wear his hair long to cover. All of John D's, uh, like surviving diaries. And I know he wrote about like entering into that relationship with an earless man, but, um, it's not that relevant to my life, so I've not focused too intensely on it. But the point I'm trying to make is that these practices were never supposed to be by thousands of people who are all looking for, you know, to a handful of people. Uh, the, all of these 
all of this uh, sort of magical potential in the world is supposed to be tapped in on an individual level. You're supposed to experience it the way you individually experience it and then develop it out from there. Aleister Crowley kind of had the, uh, the marketing and the merchandise thing going down. But if you think about who Aleister Crowley was, he was kind of, uh, I mean, that's what he did, right? He was a, a great self-promoter. So of course that's how he goes. But when I first stepped into this community and I found that isn't exactly how the community is going. And then you start seeing yeah. most of the people on here aren't even doing anything in these books. <laughs> they're just telling other people they're not doing it correctly. <laughs> um, I started to think about uh, like the French Dada movement. Yeah. And I realized, you know, most people just dismiss that entirely, think it's just, you know, gibberish. But in reality, what they were doing was they were tearing apart uh, fascism and the art community that had built up underneath it to rebuild something. It's sort of like burning off a prairie. Uh, for those of you that don't know, prairie grass gets burnt off every couple of years so that the soil can sort of uh, remain healthy and the grass can continue to grow yet be maintained. Um, it's kind of what I'm setting out to do with my practice. Everything is steeped in tradition. However, it is my own unique naturist approach to it. That's why I refer to what I say as naturism instead of cometicism, because one, I'm not in the land of Comet, not in Egypt, I'm in America. So when I honor uh, say Geb, I'm not honoring Geb in the sands of Egypt, I'm honoring Geb in the soil of the American Midwest. Um, Hoppy for me is not the Nile necessarily. Hoppy is the Mississippi River. You see what mm. I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I, like uh, I basically just, uh, yeah, I want to create something that's never been created before because I think what the Discordians, the Discordians said that uh, like religion is only good for about 100 years and then it sort of spoils. And I think I agree with that. I want to reawaken uh, these different elements of spirituality and magical practice that I see mostly being uh, either overlooked or just completely ignored. Um, yeah. <laughs> Are there any uh, forms of, of Tahitian magic that you saw being overlooked that you included in the uh, Flesh and Feather book, which is full of rituals and spells, it seems? Uh, there are several. A lot of it is uh, just reawakening the practice of narrative. Uh, I think that is something that gets mostly overlooked. People have a certain idea of what magic is supposed to be. And they don't realize like a lot of formal spells in ancient Egypt were actually like long narratives. Um, some of it is sort of non-canonical according to the myths that we sort of you know know mm -hmm. off the top of our head. Uh, the Coptic Church, which grew out of Egypt, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they're they were really good about that. They put Horus in all sorts of kind of seemingly bizarre scenarios for the purpose of uh, healing a person. Uh, but to that same extent. These medical texts in Egypt, especially, were never just solely to be read. Uh, they were to be either performed or to be spoken alongside of medicinal remedies. Um, so I think that is an area that I focus on quite a bit, uh, which is don't turn immediately to the divine 
to solve your problems. The most magical act a person can perform is simply accomplishing something without divine intervention. Um, which is, I mean, again, that kind of goes all the way back to ancient Egypt uh, when uh, magic, religion, and the sciences and art were all kind of one large field instead of these various branches. Um, everything was endowed with uh, a certain religious authority. Uh, in fact, they didn't really even have a word for religion. That's how all-encompassing it was. So yeah. spiritual fact can just be solving your own problems. Uh, instead of performing a spell to get more money, maybe go back to school to get, in degree, to get a degree to unlock more possibilities. Uh, now, between you and me, all the people listening academia isn't necessarily i'm not necessarily on board with academia and that might be beyond the scope of this podcast um <laughs> but i know like i have i have a yeah no I, I mean i come out of academia right and i actually yeah i have a lot of thoughts to say on that and we talk a lot about that on this podcast you know i come out of academia as well and uh especially arts in the academia it seems to uh, sort of uh, lock away art behind these bars of academia. So only people who can afford degrees can appreciate and understand what this art is. Uh, and most people don't even realize like the figures they're talking about often died completely broke um, with oftentimes just you know, no patrons, nothing. Uh, I mean, Picasso was nobody, you know. Uh, yeah. I think it was his cousin preserved some of his paintings. Uh, and so he didn't find any kind of fame until long after he had died. Uh, yet now you have to go to school to understand Picasso. Well, Picasso didn't go to school to be Picasso. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. I've lost my train of thought rambling. But yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to pull apart everything about occultism, get it all sort of flying around in this chaotic cloud so that I can rebuild it. The first naturist principle, uh, which there are eight naturist principles. Um, the first is within chaos are all things assembled. So to perform any sort of an, a, a magical act, you have to, like I said earlier, you have to first uh, get them all presented before you in a big disorganized cloud so you can rebuild it sort of like Legos before you in the way you want it. So yeah, like Dadaism, tear it all down and rebuild it the way I want it to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I of course encountered Dadaism uh, when I was young uh, th through reading uh, references to it in Allen Ginsberg and people like that. It was a interesting thing to come across as a, as a kid. Yeah. And then uh, I like to see kind of how people run with the idea of Dadaism, because it's taken on a lot of forms since its conception. One of my personal favorites is the Bonzo Dog Duda Band, uh, and specifically all of the theater uh, that their lead singer uh, kind of put on. He bought this huge boat and then would put on these bizarre plays inside of them. And oh, then after awesome. his boat started to sort of run out of room, the BBC just gave him his own radio show. And it's, I think to this day, it's one of the longest running radio shows in history. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just kind of the day-to-day -day life of this, of this town 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's a similar similar sort of thing to uh, what Yates did. Uh, you know, he got into the Golden Dawn and, and uh, then started trying to, especially in his later years, express what he had learned and gone through uh, in the form of plays um, and especially reviving Irish national theater. And but try, using that as a means to try and liberate the Irish soul and by the Irish country, which you could say he did, um, along with, with the rest of the country. And, uh, but also to, you know, channel all of this, the mysteries and the wisdoms he found in it into the populace. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a common tendency we see within a lot of occultists to, to go up into the mystical realms, but then to try and channel it in a transformative way into culture and society. You're sort of doing that with the with the church, right? Because this is a church that you have founded, correct? Yeah, or a temple, whatever word makes you feel yeah. more comfortable. Yeah, uh, so it's a temple, but a, I guess legally it still counts as a church in the States. You guys have pretty open laws with that stuff, unlike here in Canada. Well, legally, it's not any sort of, I don't know how I feel about tax exemption status. Uh, so I haven't pursued it yet. Part of me feels like it would be uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, Funny. I go back and forth. So, you know, legally, oh, I'm sorry, what's that? Rudolf Steiner's church, the Christian community, because they feel that the tax exemption status is kind of slimy or it leads to sliminess, I guess, or whatever their reasons are, they uh, have quite a broad disclaimer and have for forever that they've registered as a corporation because they don't believe that they should be tax exempt. Yeah, I, uh, I might have to read There's a precedent with Steiner, quite interestingly. Yeah, I mostly don't. Uh, uh, I mostly don't want to associate quite as heavily with the federal government, which is an organization I think should be completely <laughs> taken apart. Hey, man. Um, but also the <sighs> people who use their tax exemption status uh, to buy these huge, enormous <laughs> airplanes and things like that. And while I don't plan on ever making enough money to buy an airplane. I don't want to be in line with them but at all. What if Jehudi wants you to have three jumbo jets all to yourself? Well, Jehudi, like I said, Jehudi <laughs> wants you to do your own thing. So I haven't bought an airplane, but I have started learning how to fly. So I'll fly somebody else's airplane. <laughs> um, That's awesome. You're learning how to fly? Yeah, it's just one of those things, uh, an opportunity. Like in real life, not with witch's ointment. Right, with an airplane. Cool. Um, one built in the 70s, no less. So it's kind of cool. There's an oh. ashtray in it, which my car <laughs> doesn't even have an ashtray. Um, oh, those days. Remember the days when we had ashtrays everywhere? Well, I don't remember the days. I've barely been alive in the time of being able to smoke in a restroom. But at any rate, though, um, because my approach uh, to all of this, I rarely use the word magic, by the way. Uh, oh, interesting. So, um, I might have to stutter back once in a while but my approach to the divine or the magical is through the written and spoken word uh so for that reason some of the choices i make um regarding what words i use uh are solely because they look better on a page or are solely because they sound better coming out of the mouth uh like i said it's like the difference between tahuti and jahuti Jahuti has a really satisfying ja, ja, ja sound. And on top of that, it's got some pretty curly tail 
letters as well, mm. whereas Tohuti is sort of more authoritarian, it's more rhythmic. Uh, but I call it the Church of Flesh and Feather solely because it sounds better than the Temple of Flesh and Feather. Okay. If that makes any sense. That being said, though, the word church does put a lot of people off. But I think if you're going to believe in one, especially in this sort of occult pagan community we find ourselves in, if you're going to believe in one of these spiritualities, you have to accept all of them. So if somebody's uncomfortable by the word church, the Church of Flesh and Feathers probably not for them. Yeah. Yeah, no, you definitely, you find there's, I've noticed in the spiritual community, there's people who are at different stages, especially with um, their acceptance. So there's people who, who are coming out of uh, their childhood sort of experiences with religion, which are more often than not rough, um, it seems. And so they're they're not open to those terms. And then there's people who have gone farther in the spiritual traditions and have grown and sort of chilled out and realized that their you know, pre-understandings were not necessarily um, correct and that these things can take on new meanings based on uh, how we interpret them. And that's, that's where you free yourself up being sort of linguistically bound and fettered by your prejudices prejudices towards specific language yeah so you're, you're looking for people who have moved past certain points and uh biases and are ready to you know how they've let go of those childhood presuppositions or experiences yeah which is actually why the church of flesh and feather is while tahuti sits in our shrine when you look into the eyes of jehuti in the shrine you're allowed to see the eyes of whatever god you see looking back at you if that makes sense for sure uh, well especially when you consider uh tahuti as logos yes exactly uh but not only that but if you it seems like the greek magical papyri is becoming sort of uh universal in this community so i go back to this example if you look at the pgm and the way they interact with the divine any one spell will have like you know at least four or five different god names in it well if you're performing a spell trying to accomplish something don't you think it would make a little bit more sense to kind of focus your power in on one god um however if you look at all of these gods as sort of being if you see as sort of being like um emanations of one larger god right the way the you know there's a God above God in a way. Um, mm -hmm. Ancient Egyptians communicated this by depicting various gods as being different parts of one larger God's body. So like Thoth was- Most either... mythologies have the gods coming from one greater God and their body in specific, right? Yeah. So if you look at like Thoth is often uh, the throat, the heart, uh, or else the mouth of Atum. Uh, I think we're all familiar with the myths of the eyes of Ra. Uh, if you approach God as being sort of this huge nebulous power above all other gods, the Greek magical papyri starts to sort of look like maybe those God names, while you are referring to gods that you can worship on earth, you're sort of honing in on a certain area of this huge 
nebular being above all of them. So God names kind of become coordinates. And so to sort of hone in on the correct area, say you wanted to do something uh, of a chthonic nature, uh, you would rely on the names Geb, um, Wasir or Osiris probably. Uh, depending on what you wanted to do, you might throw in a little bit of Sutek. So you're sort of honing in on this area of God to ask that specific area for help in accomplishing your task. That uh, is sort of the idea the Church of Flesh and Feather has regarding God. Like I said, Thoth is in our shrine, but all gods look through Thoth. Um, another sort of uh, component of naturism is you have to create a cosmology in which your belief system was created and functions. So our cosmology or my specific cosmology, because everyone's free to have their own, uh, depicts uh, Tahuti coming into being and then creating potential. And once potential is created, he begins to sing and from his mouth flows all of reality. So he creates when he speaks. Um, but that's what abracadabra literally means. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Create In Aramaic. Yeah. Um, but on Wednesday, I feel almost guilty. Everything I've wanted to do, I have managed to make happen. Uh, I've all, I've said since the very beginning, um, my goal in beginning, when I formed the Church of Flesh and Feather, I would go out into fields with a small group of people and uh, we would do stuff. And then COVID shut all of that down. So I went online and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. But I've said since the beginning, like I got a Patreon so on Patreon, we're the Church of Flesh and Feather. Our goal is to open a public temple space um, in which there will be a shrine to Thoth, certainly. But I mean, one of the people who is backing this, this venture um, is a Sumerian reconstructionist. Mm. And so there will probably be a shrine to like Marduk and Inanna. It's for oh. all gods, um, but it's also a place where like a centrifugal area of community where people who are not necessarily comfortable believing in God even or worshiping can come and sort of realize like any number of these crazy, um, you know, ithophallic gods uh, with giant tongues hanging down or multiple breasts, any number of these crazy eccentric things are options to you. Uh, you just have to figure out the way in which you interact, you believe and, inter and interact with the divine. Uh, a lot of people are either not comfortable believing in God or they're not comfortable actually worshiping. And I know I certainly was for years, I tried to believe in God and it seemed like I kind of only believed in God when bad things were happening. And uh, there was a point when I actually kind of realized like that's it's a very Seinfeld thing, very Seinfeld way of approaching God. Like, <laughs> only believing in God when you're blaming something on them. Um, so I think belief, well, belief is two things. One, uh, it's completely arbitrary and we don't have control over it, but it's also usually sort of ends up being self-serving in a way. Uh, but again, if we can present all the elements of belief to somebody, 
they can sort of roll with it the way they want to. So on Wednesday, I am actually uh, going to meet with somebody about potentially renting a space for a public shrine and reading area. Um, and then we'll also probably do sleep temple stuff from there as well. Uh, it's really crazy. It's been like one year since I've come uh, publicly with all of this. Wonderful. It's, it's just. It sounds yeah, like uh, thought has your back. Well, definitely all things I do. Well, everything that's been successful, rather, has been has been devotional in nature. So I definitely agree with you on that. Everything I've tried to do in my sort of mundane world, out in my local community, has still sort of been. Uh, <laughs> I'm still too weird for the area in which I live. Uh, but yeah, Thoth definitely provides community elsewhere in the world, I guess. But, yeah, you're 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 in an interesting area. I heard. Of course, I listened to your glitch bottle uh, episode that you did, and I listened to uh, my buddy Ryan's Praxis Behind the Obscure interview with you. So I brushed up on what you were up to. Although I was aware of you as soon as you sort of hit the scene, uh, I keep an eye out for Tahitian things, given my background at Temple Tahuti and. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to see uh, how much you've done. And the book looks amazing. It's, it's just a work of art, really. And uh, I'm so thrilled that, that you're doing such serious work with my favorite god, you could say. It's just, it's wonderful. I mean, we used to just do epic ceremonies uh, for Thoth at our temple. And, you know, even we'd even go all in and have like four people invoking Tahuti in, the, in four different aspects, like including the baboon and stuff like that, and just really bring down these epic kinds of currents and then you could go commune with you know an adept in each of the roles of the different thoughts and then we direct the ceremony towards a purpose and all of that stuff like that was just some of my favorite things to do and i i you know i got to especially in later years to be in charge of designing a lot of those things and i you know the mat the picture that's you've seen online is uh you know that's a mask i made and then someone tried to improve it but they made it worse and so that it couldn't be worn anymore i don't know why people always try to augment other people's work rather than make their own that's a weird thing that we see a lot this actually built into the human mind that whatever we're making can't possibly be good enough so i think it's totally natural to keep tweaking with stuff um <clears throat> that what you've accomplished and i know you don't do it anymore but what you accomplished uh like venerating a god in a group of people is it's a blissful experience. It's something that I don't think most people in this community have ever or will ever get to experience. That's one of the other things I hope to do with a church of flesh and feather is provide that experience. Um, can you imagine? Can, can you imagine standing in a crowd of say a hundred people and all of you are chanting the name of an ancient god? It's an that's, amazing. Thing. That's what I did for seven years in the Golden Dawn. That's. Yeah. I wish we I did. could have been a part of that. Oh, you would have loved Temple Tehuti. We were we were epic. Yeah. And and I'd still do that stuff. Yeah, I just did a huge Tehuti ritual just a little while ago with a, a sore out, out here in, in Vancouver. We did a big Tehuti thing and it was powerful and awesome and humbling as it always is. And uh, you know, last year, 14 months, I was at the Temple of Isis in Sonoma County and every week doing different Egyptian gods, a lot of Tehuti as I tend to do, but also Isis and, and Horus and well, you know, all of them. But yeah, I was doing that every single week invoking, invoking Thoth in ceremony form with uh, 
classes that were open to the public, anyone in the area. And people drove from all around to come to my ceremonies and rituals at, at uh, ISIS Oasis. Really so I'm awesome. still very active in my work. I'm just independent of any fixed membership right now. And that's sort of, I think, uh, not a bad way to be after you've spent 30 years doing something. Yeah. I'm going to have to go up north, man. There's a lot of, well, first of all, it's crazy how many people there are all over the world who end up finding all of this stuff that I'm doing. I mean, there are various Asian countries represented in the Church of Flesh and Feather. Yeah, uh, awesome. Scotland, all over South America. But it seems like there are a lot of people up in Canada, and I have to get up there sometime. I think we could do some well, stuff. There, yeah, there's not a lot of people up in Canada. Let's first get that clear, right? We've got a lot of space and we've got a few people. We could use, we could actually use 300 million more people in Canada. So if you know anyone, send them our way. Um, every, you're warm enough once you build a fire. But well, there is, there is a lot. Chicago, there's something to be said about having you having room to roam yes yes you can you can like that's the great thing you can get land some places in canada for next to nothing and build whatever you want there um, you can get lakeside land for 20 30 grand in some places and it might not be local to much the internet might cost you a lot through satellite but you can build an amazing place and do do what thou wilt you know and there are magicians a lot of serious magicians up here who don't have the kind of community that that we'd like uh, to the same extent that we'd like so there, there's definitely room for people like you to come up visit put on events and we're definitely starved for that in a way and uh, hopefully the border will open up soon yeah this all kind of is starting to happen and i mean obviously this is the time it has to happen but it's sort of a strange time uh, i have all of a sudden i have access to all of these different parts of the world and there are people all over the world wanting me to go but you can't go anywhere <laughs> you can't go anywhere i mean i'm no. fully vaccinated everyone in my household is but uh at the same time i live in a country that mostly ignores the fact that every so often huge health concerns arise on a global level i mean it just kind of keeps happening over and over again and it seems like the united states mostly forgets yeah <laughs> That's an interesting way to look at it, actually. I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that perspective. And you're right, it is that sort of, that factor is being ignored. Interesting fact though. Um, when I, well, when I started the Church of Flesh and Feather, I didn't have that much information on my family. And we have since sort of tracked down my parents, biological parents, and uh, found out a little bit more. But when I began all of this, Ancestral veneration seemed very important. I mean, you know, it's sort of a staple in this community. So who was I going to turn to with regards to, uh, you know, ancestors? So I just sort of picked who I considered to be the genus loci of this area, uh, Vachel Lindsay. Um, and I basically canonized him. So he is now Saint Friend of Springfield. Um, but he was uh, also a devotee of Thoth way back in the day. Um, he, he admired uh, Swedenborg quite a bit and uh, he helped welcome the Baha'i Temple to, uh, to America as well. Um, but his father is actually largely responsible for the idea of the germ theory catching hold in America. 
uh, him and a man named Ignaz Simmelweis who published his theories and then was arrested and imprisoned for it. Dr. Lindsay, however, just sort of talked about it and taught that little ghosts are haunting your body. And through oh, wow. sanitation practices, you can rid your body of these ghosts. And uh, then he died in 1918. And then almost immediately the Spanish flu broke out. And when everybody in Springfield started dying of the Spanish flu, I mean, it, were, it was of such a number that people with large houses just had to sacrifice their houses to fill with the corpses of their dead neighbors, basically. But everybody oh, started to remember what Dr. Lindsay was talking about. Yeah. And uh, Springfield. Uh, Is this Springfield, it. not Missouri? No, thank oh. God not. That's where uh, I've been no. to. <laughs> this is Springfield, Illinois. Okay. Uh, Springfield, Illinois made it sort of illegal to spit on the street. And uh, almost immediately, the numbers started to drop. And then that practice started to spread. So people stopped spitting in the streets. And the amount of people dropping around them started to reduce. So wow. it's kind of psychedelic. And again, that goes facial venerated Thoth, who even in ancient Egypt had a number of sort of medicinal qualities. He's one of the gods called on the most in, uh, in uh, medicinal, in, uh, oh my goodness, sorry, in medical papyri. Um, it's just sort of interesting. It's sort of like Thoth's influence on the Midwest again. So there's this way of looking at things to suggest, well, maybe all of this has always been happening and it's just kind of time you acknowledged it. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. It's funny to think how, how recent our understanding of germs and all of that is. I, I, I heard Nostradamus, what hit one of his big breakthroughs in the plague was just getting people to wash and clean. And that was his magic, part of his mysterious arts, <laughs> washing himself with water. Well, again, one of the most magical things you can do is to accomplish something on your own without divine inspiration. So simply washing your hands is uh, it's an act of great hicca, uh, even to this day, because uh, if it's one thing I've realized with COVID, uh, it's just how truly disgusting most people are. And I don't, I don't think I have ever been more aware of the fact that almost nobody washes their hands after going to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, I've, I, I think that's more common in some places than others. I've never, you know, and it, sure it's more common with guys, but like it is always shocking when you see, if you're in the bathroom as a dude and you see how many guys just walk out without washing their hands. That is a little scary. What's really scary is how many of them stop, make almost like direct eye contact with you. <laughs> And then leave. COVID uh, <laughs> happened. I've looked deeply into my eyes in a public bathroom than ever before. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think I saw a Michael Sarah movie once where he's going to the bathroom, and then as he walks by the sink, he just waves his hand in that direction, like he's looking all depressed and downtrodden. And as he walks by the sink, he just waves his hands in that direction to make even a symbolic gesture for himself of cleaning. And it was hilarious. It's like, that's, that's so appropriate. <laughs> if you're going to just kind of walk by and wave your hands. Just wave his hands towards the faucet and go, and then, and then rubs them on the towel. <laughs> yeah, let's wash our hands, people you know and don't um, spit on the street away, yeah when covid goes away i think i'm still going to wear my mask um, <laughs> well i think it might be legally required in most places 
even once COVID goes away. I don't know. Like I said, I'm sort of uh, almost at this point on board with just uh, becoming a sovereign nation um, who probably, you know, mooches off of my friend's refrigerators and stuff because I can't imagine how much it would cost to import uh, like a bag of chips or something. Uh, but nonetheless, we would still wear, uh, we'd still wear, oh, what's this? Sorry. Well, you'll have to make some special uh, Jehuti face masks for your uh, members. I actually, I've got two masks that give everybody the creeps when I wear them. Oh yeah? Um, what are they? I have to know. Well, I've got one that's covered in Coptic writing. Oh, that sounds awesome. A what in the middle, of it. A, in the middle a, of it? A great big onk. Oh, cool. Yeah, awesome. Um, hand stitched all of it. Oh, wow. Give me sort of the side eye when, I, when I'm wearing it. And then I have one that uh, has a green American flag. A friend of mine made this. has a green American flag uh, with a giant marijuana leaf over the front of it. Oh, boy. Full on when I wear that one, and they give me nasty looks. But <laughs> that's because you were in that part of the country, correct? I mean, uh, no one would give you a second glance if you did wore that in Canada. Yes, I'm in a weird part. Even though it's completely legal here, it is. Uh, yeah, I'm in a weird, uh, weird place where people still, which still blows my mind, because this area of the country was affected enormously uh, by. Uh, well, like the uh, illegal sales of alcohol, uh, uh, Central Illinois, especially in Southern Illinois, have this just insane history of uh, moonshining, where it's just like these militias would just form out of nowhere and wage war with each other. Hmm. Um, just like one group of people would be for the sale of alcohol, the other would be against it. And then during all of that turmoil, the KKK would come along and start recruiting people. Oh, my God. <laughs> we can provide you with safety. It's this crazy thing to think about. And again, now it's the same thing as kind of starting to happen with the legalization of marijuana. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when mushrooms and stuff starts uh, becoming legal. People are going to not know how to handle any of that. Yeah, some guys I know just started the first mushroom dispensary in Vancouver. I've, uh, well, okay, here's the deal. There was a time in my life when I used to uh, party quite a bit. Um, and when I say party, it was mostly like sitting in my basement alone, listening <laughs> to Nash records or something, you know. So what did you listen to? What's that? What did you listen to? Oh, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh, awesome. Yeah. But not with Young. you got to have Young, brother. Canada represent. Uh, well, I consider Neil <laughs> Young to be his... His own well, thing. I kind of consider Neil Young to be better than Crosby, Stills, and Nash combined. Now we're talking. Uh, yeah. Meeting with them, so I give him his own. Um, I was, yeah, just listening to my grandpa's records high alone in a basement. Awesome. <laughs> well, if that's if that's if that's what you considered partying, then I you got off pretty light, I think, by most people's standards. And I haven't done it in years, though psychedelics or anything. Really? And uh, you know, it's like there are all these people. Like, you haven't invoked Thoth and tried the DMT. Well, I'm a well. I mean, not see. I haven't done psychedelics since I became religiously devoted. 
Yeah. And there's actually, you know, justification to do it now. The ancients, I mean, I've talked about this on other podcasts, so I'm sorry if it's kind of starting to become a little bit of a deja vu thing, but the ancient Egyptians used to consume what they referred to as shum shumet, which was basically medical marijuana, but they'd shove it up their butt most of the time, which is an option here in Illinois, but uh, I have never bought um, a marijuana suppository. Not yeah. Yet. I might try it out, but uh, I've not done. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will. Um, awesome. I should, I'll let you know if I shove anything up my butt. How it goes. How's that? <laughs> um, Stay tuned, folks. The next ex- episode with Reverend Zemi will be very exciting. <laughs> Once he have up his butt, it will but, be the butt I episode. And I want to, but uh, I don't think I have all of the. For the first time in my life, I'm like an adult now, you know, and I've got a child. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I need a trip sitter. Mm. And I don't feel like I've got that. And I've never been more aware of the fact that, uh, like, man, I'm on medications that this could interact with. And I don't know. I want to badly, yeah. though. Yeah. Like a delicate experience. But. Yeah, I think people should be very circumspect and careful when, you know, especially approaching, even approaching things entheogenically, like you, you got to be cautious. I mean, for sure, like DMT could break some people's minds. I also think some people might go into those realms, like, you know, leave their body on a heavy DMT trip and decide not to come back. I think that's possible. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, marijuana can break some people's minds. So, so people, need, you know, we don't provide, nature does, and people should, should do their research and, and be careful, of course. Yeah. When I was younger, I had a pretty intense experience on ayahuasca in Peru. Oh, you, so you've done DMT. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, okay. And I've done some and all that stuff. I used to be a real daredevil, and I used to just kind of consume without regard of what I was putting in my body. Um, but when I was in Peru, I sort of became aware of, uh, even though the people around me weren't speaking English and I wasn't speaking their language, I just sort of started to understand what we were saying to each other. It's like we were communicating on a level beyond language. And uh, that applied also to the plants and animals around me. Yeah. Um, and I started to kind of understand the way they would formulate these practices. I mean, they would go under... And then they would interact with like uh, plants and these plants would just, you know, they would tell them, well, if you consume me, this will happen to you, you know? And then when you kind of come to and you're starting to like think about it, like there's reassurance there because then they will tell you, you know, that is exactly how we form these. So I don't know. I think any kind of uh, do, I think any sort of drug is a religious experience uh, in and of itself. Uh, some of them are probably more um, different levels of benevolence, I guess you could say. Uh, yep. But some of them are too chaotic and they can fry you and you can never come back. I mean, that's what Sid Barrett was doing. And look at that. He was the first casualty to LSD. Yeah, I've, I've heard some details about that story, but I can't remember what they are. Um, but yeah. Oh, Sid Barrett. Yeah. Sid Barrett was like the best member of Pink Floyd even though he was only on their first album and then one track of the second. And then he uh, like freaked out. He took so much LSD, he just sort of freaked out and then uh, disappeared for a while. And then 
returned to the band when they were recording Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which was about him. And they didn't recognize who he was because he was so, gained a whole bunch of weight. And I think he had no eyebrows. They went on to, if you've ever heard uh, like The Wall, especially seen like the video of it. There's a lot of that is uh, inspired by uh, Sid Barrett. Wow. I didn't know all that. I was never a huge Floyd listener, but obviously, you know, I still bought Dark Side of the Moon on cassette when I was 11 years old, of course. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it's not been a big band in my life, but yeah, I love Roger Waters' work on the guitar and stuff. I don't know. They seem, I don't know, the older I get, the more I kind of start to see a lot of, especially musicians being just kind of like, jerks um kind of <laughs> see pink floyd as being sort of like uh has been assholes who are now trying to remain uh relevant by selling merchandise and i think that's just sleazy mm. yeah so so where you live is actually quite a you've talked about your environment and some of the struggles and like the interesting you know people still sort of have a villainized view of weed and all that but you are uh, what i found interesting in a coincidentally it's quite a magical environment you're you're are you is it correct you're in the same town as jack rail the, the great pgm teacher yeah jack rail and then samuel david uh, who is actually that sumerian reconstructionist i mentioned earlier he's about to publish a book with anathema uh, which is going to be truly a first of its kind a devotional to the sumerian gods oh awesome uh, as well, he makes just breathtaking Sumerian idols as well. But yeah, the three of us live in the same town, and uh, that always sort of blows people's minds because you can be in this community for decades and never run into anybody else who is practicing anything close to what you're, you know. I mean, there's a good chance nobody around you even knows what you're talking about if you bring up anything like. You know, like I brought up Austin Osmond Spare, anything like that. And then here was just the three of us, and we all just kind of found each other doing kind of similar things. In a relatively um, small town, correct? Well, it, uh, this town, it's about 150,000 people, which is about yeah. uh, 159,000 people more than the town I grew up in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, normally if to go to a very large city to even have a few occultists of serious character. Yeah, well, central Illinois is a magical place, but the magic lies in the land itself and in the history that we're kind of struggling to ignore in a way. Um, there have always been just incredible things happening in Illinois, uh, but the whole state was sort of founded on a Native American curse. Um, as the French made their way down here, um, one early settler's daughter fell in love with a Native American. And uh, when he found out, he caught them and they were leaving actually to elope. And uh, he tied the guy, the Native American guy up to a log and sent him down the Illinois River or what would become the Illinois River. Rather. Whoa. Um, I know, and the guy's last breath before he uh, went around the river bend was to curse the area, uh, which is now known as Kaskaskia. And if you give uh, if you give old Kaskaskia a Google, you'll notice that it is slowly 
being eaten by the river, the confluence of the two rivers there. Wow. Um, in fact, at the moment, I think that so much of the town is gone that uh, their cemeteries are starting to be at risk. And every once in a while, uh, somebody will go out to fish and find like seven or eight caskets floating down the river. <laughs> so everything here is extremely divine. Uh, however, um, it's sort of locked behind all of this Americanism that I don't think most people know how to think past, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, and it makes me think it's really uh, nice that you've come along and a few others to uh, point people back to some of the ancient mystery of the land. Yeah, I do. See, because like I said, when I started believing in God, I didn't have any ancestral context to place my faith. Um, so I kind of found my way to my own God. And then by the time I had found where my family came from, I had established myself so deeply in Tahuti that, I mean, he's my God. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not just yeah. on him. Um, but we do, uh, Jack, Sam, and I do acknowledge it's a crucial part of what we do. We acknowledge the spirits of the land and we strive to protect it. And we even maintain blessings of the city. Uh, every year I have sort of these secret areas surrounding the city in this great big huge circle that I bury uh, bricks that I have engraved with blessings to sort of you know, create this protected zone. So even though um, there's a disconnection in a way, we do strive to reconnect with the land. And I would say that we've had some very uh, tangible experiences wherein we have received, you know, signs of approval from the land. Uh, but then of course there are, there are things that happen that uh, suggest we should just drop what we're doing and leave. And we acknowledge those as well. Uh, but Whenever we do anything, especially outside, wherever we are is just as much a part of this, um, I don't know, operation, the ceremony, as any of us human beings are. Hmm. Have you heard much of, of sources for the prohibition of, of blood and magic uh, with the Egyptian gods? Uh, well, I've heard that referenced a few times, and I'm curious as to where it might have come from. Well, the Egyptians, for the most part, left bodily fluids out of what they were doing. Um, however, there are some people that say that they would mix cow's blood into the mortar and the mud that they used to make bricks um, because it basically strengthens the bricks and the mortar and everything. But I'm not sure off the top of my head if there's a lot to prove that actually happened. Um, but, I've, uh, I've mostly heard people talk about the prohibition. So don't use any blood ever with anything to do with Egyptian gods. And I've heard it repeated. And I'm wondering, I've, I've been always been curious if that was just something someone said and then it got repeated, but people no, lost track the of the source. I mean, even in offerings, the ancient Egyptians, their offerings... I mean, to somebody from the outside, the process of leaving offerings before a god would look, it would basically be a barbecue. They would never senselessly kill animals. I mean, it always had a purpose. 
they would usually feed people with the offerings. So um, that are just completely mummify an animal and put it in a necropolis, uh, of which they did, you know, in the millions. But uh, for the most part, yeah, it was all left out. Um, spittle is like spit. Yep. It's pretty much the only bodily fluid that I can think of off the top of my head that would have been used frequently. Uh, but that is because it had, uh, there are a number of creation myths that sort of begin with spittle. But what people, what you got to realize with regards to ancient Egypt is that we're not talking about uh, like one area. Uh, we're not talking about a small time frame either. So of course, things were radically different on one end of the nation as they were on the other end. Uh, and then on top of that, there are like thousands of years separating so things change and uh i mean i'm sure you know people are really good at justifying what they believe whether <laughs> whether it be a justifiable justification or not um yeah for the most part no. sources say that there wasn't blood um urine for some reason is also something that some i've seen people somehow believe was used a lot in ancient Egyptian ritual, and that's just not the case either. Uh, in fact, before, for the most part, a lot of our ancient sources say the first thing you do is you clean out the area. And that comes from the practice of uh, like, while the outside world was mostly kept outside and the inner sanctums of these temples were sort of their own contained little bubble, Animals like cats, for instance, were allowed to roam freely through these temples. And uh, it's kind of funny that like, like the first step would be to clean out the temple space. The second step would be to place new sand on the ground. And there are all of these symbolic interpretations, but I maintain that uh, that's just basically like changing a giant cat litter box, basically. Yeah, no, for the most part, blood was not used in ancient Egypt. It's interesting that the the uh, pyramidal cultures, like you see in Egypt and and Mesopotamia and like South America, have these differences in their religious traditions. Because obviously, in South America, blood was quite a big part of their rituals and sacrifices, right? Yet they were influenced somehow to build very similar structures to Egypt. Well, uh, what's actually kind of groovy about that is. Even in Illinois, we have our own sort of pyramid tradition. Uh, while they weren't like pyramidal temples, uh, there is a place called, it's a historic site now called Cahokia Mounds, which was like, I think it was the largest native uh, settlement in the Americas for several thousand years, or at least in North America. But I mean, it had a population comparable to New York City. Um, oh, right. They, I think I saw Graham Hancock talk about that. Um, probably. I think it was also on Ancient Aliens, which is a television show I don't usually watch. Yeah, yeah not my movies. cup of tea. Yeah. But uh, instead of building, like moving large blocks of stone, uh, the Native Americans would basket would move basketfuls of earth and stamp it down to build this huge, enormous shaped earthen mound, and then build a temple on top of it. 
So while it doesn't necessarily look like the sort of traditional image of a pyramid, uh, be it South American, Near Eastern or Egyptian, it still does technically count. So see, it's not that far away. <laughs> it's an hour and a half drive from my house. No, it's very cool. Um, I didn't. Uh, I don't know much about um, Illinois, but or about America really in general. And uh, I'm always fascinated to learn about all these. You know, we look all over the world for these ancient sites and and have ignored for so long the ones right in our backyards. Yeah, I don't think most people realize. I think, see, okay, when I'm not writing uh, occult stuff in my mundane life, if you will. Uh, I'm actually a folklorist. I write a folklore column. Oh, cool. um, so I'm very aware of all of these things, probably more so than most people, but and historic sites as well. But it is my belief that if something is right outside your back door, most of the time people take it for granted and then they just sort of stop seeing it at all. Mm. Um, like Springfield specifically was, everybody says there's nothing happening in Springfield, but that's simply not true. Um, and it has never been the case, even though everybody's always said nothing is ever happening in Springfield. But there was a time when Springfield, Illinois was a spiritualist capital of the whole world. Uh, some world-renowned people have come through here and some amazing eccentric stories have come here. And uh, one of our historic sites here is a, is a Frank Lloyd Wright home, which was built for a woman named Susan Lawrence, who in part built the house specifically for the purposes of it being a spiritualist learning center. So people from all over the world would come and sort of like uh, practice automatic writing and things like that. And this is really eccentric stuff and nobody talks about it at all. And wow. even the people who run the site don't mention it and they don't wanna talk about it. But I'm sure all of your listeners would rather hear about that than the architecture, right? <laughs> uh who knows uh my listeners are <laughs> a wide variety of people but yeah no it's all interesting i i'm i'm personally fascinated by architecture I, I did a lot of like art history courses and uh, classes and seminars when i was younger uh just find it fascinating especially learning about history through art is interesting just like i really liked religious history studying regular history but looking at how the religions impacted it because when you study just parochial history you're often missing out a lot of elements of why things were done especially if you're ignoring theology and churches and religions it's like you know this happened because of this like well is there more to it but if you ignore the religious elements if you're not in a theological environment, then a lot gets missed as to why things are actually done. Yeah, definitely getting as deep into certain uh, areas of research as I have, I've definitely come to realize that history is, it's again, it's like, it's meaningless. There are at least three different stories that can be told when you refer to history and three different, entirely different histories uh, surrounding the same event. There is the event that people witness, the event they talk about, and then the event they record for history. And usually those three things are very different. Um, so yeah, it is sort of you know, kind of a trip to uh, get, really, get really in there. Uh, yeah. 
Sorry. Yeah, Milo's <laughs> the, the Celtic folklore, especially the Irish. That's what I've been very much devoted to since I was very little and uh, haven't stopped being devoted to it today. I'm, uh, you know, developing further of Yeats's uh, initiations for his Celtic mysteries, and we're going to be putting those on for people whoever wants to do them and uh yeah the folklore elements definitely been my main fascination throughout my life the stories people tell in ireland one of my favorite things is uh was uh when i was living on this little island there was the ferry paths you know they're they're marked yeah yeah and i so i was talking to the bar owner i was playing illin pipes and lutes in the courtyard every day for good good pay and and uh, I said to her one day, so what's with the, the ferry paths behind the bar? Because she grew up on this island. I was like, are they real or did you just make up the signs there to attract tourists? She's like, oh, no, those are the real ferry paths. And I was like, so you believe in fairies? She was like, not at all, not at all. Get your head on straight. What are you talking about? I was like, oh, OK, OK. And then I was like, well, hmm, I thought. And I was like, so you'd let your kids play on them. She's like, I'm not daft now. No she way. She like I don't remember how she actually said any of that stuff, but you get the idea. She 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 considered it all a bunch of baloney, but not in a million years would she let her kid just go run kids would go run around the ferry paths out back. My grandmother used to say whenever I would present her with questions uh, regarding the Bible, uh, she would used to I would she would used to say, "Well, I don't know if it really happened, but it's true." <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that one before. That uh, folklore as well, sort of preserves it might not necessarily have happened but it's truth nonetheless uh in a weird way actually i sort of learned actually yates kind of had that outlook as well i'm yeah. actually speaking of yates i'm interested in what you're doing there uh wb yates was a is a figure that uh like in my early formative years i was more drawn to alistair crowley because obviously alistair crowley you know he sculpted his legacy to be more appealing than most people's if that makes any sense well appealing to some people i i found crowley through yates and i was somewhat shocked and horrified as a when i was in grade. i would got into yates in grade seven uh, because our teachers in waldorf school made us recite his lake Isle of Innisfree every day at the beat for like three months until we had it memorized and then in grade eight i discovered crowley and did a biography on him and how shocking his life was. I was hoping to shock my teachers and scare them, but since it was a Walder school, they're like Steiner people, right? So they're like, oh yeah, we know all about him. This is interesting. I was like, damn. Yeah. I regret not, uh, not getting more into Yates when I was younger because, well, at least between the two, he is a much more fascinating person. And just in general, as an occultist, he's a, he's a fascinating guy. Um, yeah i really think he took what he learned and what he did in the golden dawn and and took it in the right direction black letter press actually uh has a oh yeah yeah of his uh they put together his magical stuff you know i would have been more impressed by that if they had included his um his what was never published in his lifetime his his autobiography of his magical time in the golden dawn if they had included that i would consider the book worth getting because then it would have all of the crucial stuff of yeats's writings though of course if you want some of his most magical stuff you have to even look in his plays 
like Trembling of the yeah. Veil or Shadowy Waters. I've performed a lot of his plays and directed a lot of his plays in my life. And uh, there's a lot of magic that he put in them, as well as interpreting it through Japanese no-style drama, which is very cool. The combination of the Celtic and the Japanese uh, performance style, which involves more spiritual projection in a way than physical actions. And that's really cool and something we're incorporating into the initiations. But the Speckled Bird, um, he, he, was, he called it the book he could never finish nor stop writing. And uh, it took me only until, it was only until recently that I never could get copies of it until recently. And I have uh, a first edition here now of the original release, which was from the seventies because it never came out in his lifetime. And now as of the other day, I got the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the all four versions put together in their critical commentary thing. Again, these were, there's, these books are like three, $400 to get. So I'm very grateful for those who are supporting the Celtic mystery work that we're doing and, and helping me uh, put that together. It's a collaborative effort as all great things must be. So it's very cool. I look forward to posting more about that. And I'm gonna share, I'm gonna record the speckled bird um, on the podcast so people can actually like listen to it and hear about his interpretation of his time in the Golden Dawn and in the haphazard narrative style that it ended up being. Well, what's kind of interesting if you look at that um, time in his life is, of course, like I said, Aleister Crowley's the one everybody knows, but. Uh, the real true rock star of that whole, uh, you know, magical battle was Yeats. Because while Aleister Crowley would be very performative in it, Al you know, Yeats wasn't afraid to just basically kick him down the stairs. But there's a copy of The Speckled Bird sitting on a shelf uh, in Watkins Books in London. And uh, sometime in the next few months, the Book of Flesh and Feather is going to be presented as a window display in Watkins Books which if you're unfamiliar with Watkins books, I mean, Yates I was, Crowley. Books. I was just there the other year. Oh, no way. So you do know. Them. Oh, I've been I to the, all those bookstores tons of times. Yeah, I have never been. Uh, I've actually only been to a, like maybe two or three occult books shops uh, in my life. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it, but I yeah, we got We got to get you on the road, brother. Well, or in the air, but COVID has to go. Away, so. Yes. Yes. I keep checking whenever they post pictures of their store on Facebook or something, I zoom in and I try to make sure I can still see uh, the speckled bird. That's, I don't know why I'm, uh, I could just as easily get on eight books or something and purchase it, but I feel like that's a mission now. I have to get to Watkins books. I have to sign books there. Yes. And then I have to buy that book. I have to make it a whole big thing. Yeah, there are some other um, more damaged copies of the Speckled Bird that are quite nice that you can get uh, for less for like, I think, like less than 200 that are out there on Abe and stuff. And like the version I have is really cool. It's like most of the pages are still uncut. And it's a little tiny two volume version in a box set that is uh, one of my pride and joys now and it's it's delightful and yeah you can you can find those copies out there they're there. I don't know how interesting they are to most people who don't know Yates or the Golden Dawn. Um, but to me, it's fascinating, of course. Yes, me too. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I love, of course, what you said about Yates being really the, the, the rocks. I mean, Crowley didn't, people say he got into Portal and then Mathers uh, sort of casually put him into five equals six in Paris, but he didn't actually even get into Portal. He didn't get out of Philosophist. He didn't even complete the basic elemental grades. And while he, he saw, he, huh? by everybody. 
he was by and large despised by everybody when he was alive. Well, yeah. So he joined, he was, when he joined the Golden Dawn, he was 25 and he had just inherited what would have been for us millions of dollars. And Yates was 35 and world famous and had earned pretty much everything he did. Sure. He had patrons, but he didn't have, he had to, he had to earn those patrons and earn the support he got from the world. He didn't just have all this money given to him. So you can imagine how it, how it looks to then be some 25 year old inherited tense millionaire who had a bad rep in college and then is just and going around telling everybody that their poetry is better than the dude who's world famous for his poetry yeah it's like what are you doing man like you're not it's it's you're not going to get along with these people behaving like that yeah the truest act of sorcery though within that whole uh strange dynamic they had going was when Alistair Crowley had to go to court, I think regarding, um, I think if I, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was regarding uh, the destruction of property when he tried to storm the Golden Dawn headquarters. Yeah, so, so, so you know, Mathers had been ousted because he kicked out Annie Horniman because she was tired of giving him money. And she'd given him like 2.5 million over 10 years, basically. And she was done giving him money in Paris and he was pissed off. So he kicked out Horniman. Then Yates and all of them had to get together and be like, look, this is not going to fly. Mathers was also calling Westcott a fraud. And so, you know, Crowley was like, here's my chance to get in with Mathers, went to Paris. They had a gay old time. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they even like hooked up because Crowley was bi and Mathers was probably gay um, and they're partying in Paris and, throwing demons at each other and Mathers makes Crowley like an honorary five six gives him some documents to publish like the 777 Sefer Seferot and uh and then Crowley goes back with this ridiculous letter and tries to pretend it's not him he tries to like that he he makes up this other name he's a you know he, he's using Count Vladimir Svarev and he's calling the inner order members to assemble and hear his decrees and they're like yeah we know it's you Crowley like fuck off and he breaks into their second order building and changes the locks on them yes <laughs> and then they got he gets kicked out Yates had to show up with a policeman and the landlord and they had to like throw his ass out and he was trying yeah, to steal he, papers he, and steal their vault and changed the locks back and then took him to court and then in court yates had to make crowley uh basically admit that he did not hold these rankings because nobody liked him enough to actually let him progress and then like the uh little cherry on top of the whole experience was didn't he make didn't he reveal again in court so like yeah the matter of national record yeah. that Matthews was being played by a woman, like was being conned by a woman pretending to be the reincarnation. Yeah. Of the Is that how that works? Okay. So yeah, that was the Horo scandal. So for people who don't know, the Horo scandal was, it looks like this woman and her husband, uh, I forget what was her real name, but uh, she, she, she probably met Blavatsky. She might've met Blavatsky in America because she was from America. And she went to see Mathers in Paris and was able to reference bits of conversation Mathers had had with Blavatsky years earlier. So she clearly yeah, must have met Blavatsky and gotten bits of this conversation. Just from talking smack about Mathers with Blavatsky. Yeah, she exactly, right? So then she shows up in Paris. And back in those days, right, you could get away with a lot more than you can these and then, then now in our surveillance world. And uh, so she cons him. And he admits her as an adept, as 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 Fraulein Sprangle, 
and gives her the grades and admits her husband and their friend as these lesser grades, like two nine for her husband and stuff. And then, um, then she goes and, and then he wakes up like the next day and she's stolen the neophyte initiation and a bunch of documents. She goes off to London, advertises herself around town to these young women to initiate them, then brings them in, drugs them, hypnotizes them and has her husband's husband rape them. And then that went public and they, she, she went to court over that and defended herself. It was quite the sideshow. They even, they even in the streets, they even passed out pamphlets with little ditties making fun of the name the golden dawn join our theocratic unity like it was a shit show Holy and, the, and the, the gd had to of course read the, from their actual ceremonies to prove that you know drugging people and raping them was not part of it oh and yeah not not i mean so the drama was alive and well even back then eh <laughs> like non-stop shit yeah, show no that was brilliant though on yates's behalf he made because again, it's a national record now that yeah. Crowley and Mathers were played and were fools. That is the greatest act of sorcery that either of the two men ever accomplished, I'll tell you. <laughs> wow. That's a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I didn't know all the details regarding Sprangle. Yeah, I well, the, she, that wasn't really Sprangle. I mean, the Sprangle letters were were written by some guy because we can tell yeah. from the german grammar uh, macintosh yeah. covered that um and the you know and how important were those letters uh not really i mean sure the connection between content to to continental occult lodges is is something very well known and uh the relationship between a direct antecedent was basically non-existent prior to the golden dawn and the reason the only reason the golden dawn was claiming these secret masters was because blavatsky had made it trendy right it's like oh damn we need like these secret chiefs secret masters i mean you'd think they could have been wiser and been like they just said like look we're freemasons we're from the SIRI, sria and we believe in spirits and so we're communing with spirits to direct our pursuits here on earth which that would have all flown much more beautifully and elegantly than this uh trying to be like blavatsky with her secret chiefs who again got called out years later and totally you know just despised for the extent to which she was fabricating those stories and handwriting letters herself and claiming they were written by these masters and in, in other places and so that was a too bad they weren't more a bit more prescient on that count it would have saved them a lot of grief well there's something kind of interesting though that a point that sort of is brought up in thinking about all of this and that is that there was no uh, bigger ultimate plan these people were all thinking they're all basically like making it up as they went along and they would usually end up getting caught up in it uh, but I still think that there is a certain power within those lies um, because Madame Blavatsky uh, Joseph Campbell the founder of Mormonism yeah that's a fun one what's that that's always a fun one. Oh yeah years after their death uh, when, you know, it's sort of trendy to say that they're all, you know, fraudulent, everything they did was uh, like, you know, just made up. There are still usually even uh, the people who stand against what they stood for, who were in it from the very beginning, even those people maintain the belief that something deeply spiritual did actually happen to them with these people. 
with Joseph Campbell. I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, but uh, it was, he successfully summoned an angel and the man who uh, basically helped him found the early Mormon church who disconnected himself from it and then became one of his biggest opponents still maintain the belief that that angel approached them in the woods uh, with Blavatsky. I'm trying to remember. Um, I think it What's was her, uh, her yogis in India and stuff. Yeah. But I, th I think, um, Oh, you're talking about her actual. Yeah. Like the thing that nobody could explain that even the people who said they were full, she was full of it maintained really happened. And I think it was, she managed to pull uh, teacups out of the ground um hmm. something like that does that sound familiar yeah um yes yeah, so what i want to say is the uh after that quick bathroom break is so yeah there's such a temptation it seems throughout history and even today for people you know sure they can accomplish a wonder but the, the temptation for them to then take it to that whole guru level is just says a lot about the kinds of people they are right so magic can be done by pretty much anyone and some of people who do it when they have a bit of success just say yeah look at me this is proof of how special i am and your connection to things that are special and magical should be through me because i'm more than i am and that kind of pretense is what is most people's downfall yeah it's sort of like uh the power can only be purchased through me so it's merchandising 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah um Blavatsky uh you know uh, she I'm sure she did uh some you know many wonders I mean most people who take this stuff seriously produce lots of wonders uh it's not that crazy but yeah how they behave how that whether that goes to their head or not is is the question and it's something well, people should really look wonderful for. Is how long she managed to live smoking non-filtered tobacco like <laughs> almost constantly that is a wonderful act <laughs> yeah her and bob dylan eh mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i myself am uh since october off smoking after 10 years of pack a day and so uh it's been uh very nice i i'm vaping but uh that even that slows down here and there so it's it's a journey i i I'm, i've learned very well about myself to make sure to do most good things slowly like good works done slowly i take that in my magical work as well anytime i'm doing something that really matters like take it slow and that's the same as breaking an addiction to like tobacco if you if you push too hard if you try too hard you know then then challenges come up you get stressed out and you can fall back further than the ground you've gained I started, I quit smoking last year. Yeah. Um, but I had started smoking when I was nine. So oh, I had a yeah. solid 20, Yeah, so I had a solid 20 years of smoking. And I do still think about it all the time. Like, oh, yeah. Have you ever <laughs> yeah. seen the Jim Jarmusch movie, Coffee and Cigarettes? Of course. Oh, that's a great film. Yeah, where Tom Waits and Iggy Pop are sitting in a diner. Yeah, I love that kind of, episode. Yeah, they kind of justify smoking. <laughs> but now that they quit, they can just enjoy one every once in a while. Yeah, and yeah. Every well, chains like through the, the whole. Are sitting just right in my inside of my head all the time now. <laughs> I haven't cracked, and I don't think I will. But boy, do I want. To. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, kind of easy for me because Canada made my uh, my brand illegal. So it's like, yeah, okay, well, I don't want to do something else. So that's that's a simple solution. <laughs> you know, that's what governments are there for to to make our decisions for us, so that we don't have to be responsible for ourselves. Illinois made my brand eleven dollars a pack. I think. Oh, so. mine was 20. Mine was before that even. Mine was 22 to 23. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, dude, Canada's crazy. So they've outlawed menthols now as well as clove cigarettes, which is what I liked and, and a ton of other stuff. Like Canada, well, Canada's lost its mind when it comes to that stuff. Yet this whole time, like now weed's legal and this whole time that they've been outlawing menthols and stuff, 5-MeO-DMT and peyote, those are totally legal. You could come up here and do a peyote tahuti ceremony legally and advertise it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, right? <laughs> Can you personally get peyote? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy. You, oh get, go, you buy it over the counter in a store. My buddy yeah. grows it. People grow it. It's, you buy a cactus for, yeah. Well, this, holy cow. Well, this is. <laughs> do, you want, do you need me to find you a, a Canadian to marry so you can emigrate, bro? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm married. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Sorry. I don't want to live in Canada. No offense. <laughs> no, um, no, none taken. I, I want, if I'm going, if I'm going to move anywhere, I'm going to go to Germany, but. Um, right. Yeah. Can I go? I can just go to Canada. Yeah. Just travel up there. Well, you've heard it here first, folks. Eventually, when COVID is over. Uh, all of my naturist friends were going to Canada for a peyote ceremony honoring Tho. Yeah, you could cap that it all off with an inner ceremony afterwards and everyone does 5-MeO and shoots up to the infinite white divine light. We're going to get crazy, man. We've been yeah. locked up too long. Right? Yes, we have, brother. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it's There's illegal to go to a friend's party. house right now here. Like... It does certainly, it has certainly gotten a little bit scary. Although I will tell you, some of those laws were sort of in place in America. We had curfews. Um, you, cur you had laws stopping you from hanging out with your friends before COVID? What's that? Before COVID? No, not before COVID. Oh, okay. When COVID began, we yeah. had curfews and stuff like that. Um, I will say though, that uh, I do think I would feel more reassured not being able to go someplace because of COVID than what we're currently experiencing, which is COVID rages and everybody pretends like it's not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because, yeah, that's what happens when you abuse control of people. They stop giving a shit about what you have to say because you're, you're not being upright and honest with them sort of interesting i mean i'm <laughs> i'm positive you know what's been going on down here the last four years and <laughs> i was living in the states i was i was teaching in california um uh for 14 months up and up until covid and then i uh had to struggle very hard to get from california to canada uh, i had to wait for months and months uh canada only let me come through without being put in the the covid jails they have on a on the equinox september that was the only day I could, they said I could safely pass through without being guaranteed to go into a COVID jail that I would, get, I would pay thousands of dollars for and wouldn't be able to get food in, certainly not celiac food. Um, and it's a nightmare. People are getting raped and beaten and stuff. And yeah, um, it was a very rough time in California once COVID hit. And my mother-in-law, when COVID started happening, she had 
left the country for the first time in her life. Uh, and she had this huge European trip planned with a bunch of her friends. And uh, they were basically, they had to completely just, they had a couple of hours notice. They had to figure out ways to get out of these countries before they got locked down. And so their whole trip ended up just being, just figuring, being, figuring out how to leave uh, Europe once they actually got there. So she's planned the trip again, uh, but COVID hasn't gone away. And in fact, my uh, publisher has told me that their restrictions are kind of getting a little bit more uh, intense. Uh, but we do live in weird times, don't we? Bro. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know what to say. I sort of just want to give you a hug and cry. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I need someone to hug and cry for hours on end because it's been such a messed up time. In 1918, when the Spanish flu was ravaging the country, there was this huge literature boom afterwards, right? People were stuck inside, so they started writing and they found they were good at it. Um, when uh, Vietnam happened, there was this like big boom in the music industry. Everybody's producing really beautiful music. Mm. And now it's like my lifetime, 9-11 uh, happens and we get Toby Keith, right? COVID happens. And we, I don't even know, what do people read anymore? I don't... Uh... Hey, I've been writing a lot. Uh, I've got my whole book of, of ritual practices and theory coming out uh, on uh, experimenting in serious Golden Dawn ritual work with uh, DMT and stuff. So I've, I never would have done that without COVID. I did like a series of 22 experiments. I'm going to do another series of 22 experiments. So that's what I'm doing. I've got a whole album of songs ready to record and produce as well so we are being productive a lot of us this podcast started during covid and went through the roof yeah i will say the occult literary community does not seem to have slowed down there have been a few people who have been uh sort of put in economic hardships but well that's across the say, board i think yeah i'm proud to say though that at least the people in my direct vicinity have done things to help those people helping each other is something that seems to not especially in the States, we seem to have a sort of isolationist outlook. But uh, yeah, I guess now that you say it, there have been, yeah, we have had a huge, COVID has caused a huge surge in the occult literature community and good stuff has been published too. So. Yeah, I, you know, my early writings were, I did a lot of academic writing on, on the, the psycho psychoanalytic and philosophical results of trauma, really the spiritual and mystical results of trauma, but um, looking at it through semiotics and hermeneutics and what trauma does is it breaks it shatters our sort of symbolic reality what Jacques Lacan would call the symbolic order and by shattering it of course it's traumatic because uh, it puts us in touch with the really real the the danger of of life and death right but you get to reconstruct your consensual universe that exists in society afterwards and and you can that's where changes happen that's where transformation occurs so it's that's a subject of a lot of interest to me and i'm very you know as horrible these these times are and especially the you know the trauma that everyone's experiencing yeah we have a chance to make some changes real changes yeah, yeah and like i said i'm proud to say i've seen people actually doing it which yeah yeah, yeah it's uh, oh, we're trying clarify something, though. 
I do despise Toby Keith. That's why. I don't know who that is. Oh my gosh. Well, that's probably Who's Toby good. Keith. Is he's he like American, Little Nas with his Satan he's shoes? Songwriter who is mostly like an aggressive redneck. That's like his uh, oh. his thing, his brand. Um, but yeah, so look at that. The occult community is uh, it's thriving while the rest of the world seems to be <laughs> Well, you know, occultists are you know whether you see it as just practicing magic or practicing mysticism or spirituality um because i think of the nature of our approach to life we're more apt to handle these exact sort of situations it's almost like this is what we're training for most of the time whereas normal people who have no interest in the spiritual life you know people who have succumbed to just sort of lemmings staring vacantly on the subway or bus you know doing nothing thinking nothing and and you know mostly often you know damaged by their own traumas and experience of just life life in general is a traumatic experience on a regular basis called being alive right and so they're they don't have the tools to to deal with that that's what spirituality at its best should offer us is tools to to handle the challenges of life and so magicians and occultists we've been preparing for these sort of constant recurring end times that we always come up against and and it's it's very much in i think our time to shine yeah that's a really that's a really cool outlook to have on that. i adopt that outlook i've always liked the idea of you know uh, that they that the little priestly adage in, in in christianity of of the role of the priest being to uh comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable i love that it turns it into like a an art almost good art makes people uncomfortable good priestly service does too yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's been adopted by some new age culture and they rephrase it as comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable or something like that but the original uh, Christian priestly adage was afflict the afflicted, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. You know what else I've started to sort of realize since COVID happened that's a little bit uh, reassuring and kind of makes me view the specifically the occult community in sort of more affectionate way. It's mm. while um, certain names seem to last for longer than others, the occult has always been a, a the occult has always been a relatively small operation mm-hmm. um, i mean even alistair crowley have you ever held one of his first edition copies in your hands got one I right here yeah and uh he probably self-published that at a great expense uh that and nobody wanted to purchase it at the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> madame Blavatsky, the very first uh let's see was it uh the secret doctrine the first edition i think my I think the book of flesh and feather has sold more copies than hers has. Yeah. No, it's always been a kind of a tight community hasn't it looking out for itself. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we're also, we tend to be bibliophiles. Like even if people, uh, no matter how many uh, PDFs people pirate, we don't consider you to have a book. If you have the PDF, don't tell, don't tell us you have this book. If you're talking about a fucking PDF, right? No. Or don't offer a PDF of a book a friend of mine wrote. <laughs> yeah, that's even better. No. Yeah, right. I mean, 
because yeah, it's a small community. We probably know the person you're ripping off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. If a book's good, you should definitely buy it. And yeah, send you know support support people. You know, we we I definitely appreciate all you people listening who uh, have supported this podcast, donated and and paid for subscriptions for bonus content. Thank you all very much. I, I'm honestly humbled by all the support i mean it's it's the only way to do this when to put in 20 hours a week or into something like this right is you have to somehow make it work otherwise you just can't survive doing it so you know you need to put that time elsewhere so it's it's really great that occultists uh, support their own and that's what we're seeing and i i think that's why we're in this sort of occult revolution right now like you said your books has already sold in this year alone more than blavatsky's initial publishings yeah. What's kind of also cool is I think most occultists probably do have two sides to themselves. They have their occult side and their mundane side. And to put a little piece of yourself into your occult work means that you're sacrificing a little bit from your mundane. And so for people to actually support you and help you do that is a truly powerful feeling. Uh, anybody who's on the Church of Flesh and Feathers Patreon, I deeply appreciate. Anybody who uh, listens to the Sleep Temple of Tehuti, I deeply appreciate. Anybody who's had, who has ordered a copy of my book, I love you all as well. Uh, in fact, this next book is kind of dedicated to all of you, the litanies of thought. Um, yeah, we're rock stars, everybody. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and also, you know, it's, uh, it, people, people know that that supporting the work means we can just do better work as well. Um, and that's, that's, more. yeah, more, better, um, for sure. I, I definitely, uh, the more people uh, join on to like subscribing to this podcast or to, to joining my weekly classes like that, the more, the more who join, the better, easier it is to, to put more time in and just do more, right? Because we do still have to survive in this workaday world especially these days when so many of us have lost our jobs or can't do our main form of employment. Um, you know, I, I would always teach or I would always gig. I would always do like a couple of gigs. I could make a thousand bucks in a month with just a few gigs. So that's just three hours of me singing and playing. Hmm? Ooh, music. Yeah. I play like a lot of instruments and do uh, specialize in Celtic music. I sing, sing in Irish Gaelic, I play the Illin pipes, different forms of lutes, bazookis, citerns, uh, saz, and then wind instruments is my main thing. So Irish flute and low whistles. And uh, yeah, I've played with a lot of people. I've opened for like Mothers of Invention. I've played at the Olympics with great big C's, Alan Doyle at private shows. I've, you know, performed with lots of top-notch people. My guitarist, he's uh, Gunter Schultz from KMFDM. He's, he's here in town and we're gonna get my new album done when we can. That's awesome. Do you want to play music for our giant peyote trip celebration? Yeah, baby. You know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, you've heard it here, folks. Bring, uh, it here. bring a dish in Tupperware or something. It'll be a potluck style. Yes. Yes. We'll we'll make that happen once the border opens. Like we got Rufus Opus who just moved to Seattle. And so he's uh, just two hours. That's just two hours away from me in, in a car. Um, you know, yeah. so there's more people showing up uh, Pacific Northwest has always had a magical scene. It's just, you know, we're all sort of quiet people given how much rain we all get. And we tend to be isolationists naturally. So 
uh, hopefully though there can we can you know once people like you can travel around and more people can travel around we can get more events going more retreats and workshops and seminars while we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. That would be cool, man. That's that's my hope. I mean, that's how I want to spend my life. By the time, dig this, by the time COVID, well, presumably it will end eventually. And by the time it does, I will have at least two books out. Sam's will, Samuel David's book will be out. Uh, Jack Rail has the Hecate on, and who knows how long COVID will last. He might have a second book out by then. We should just go on a world tour. Yeah. See everybody. Get crazy with everybody. That would be a, a great time. You know, to pardon with yeah. Jack Gray. Let's get Jack Gray crazy. I uh, yeah, yeah. I want to party with Jack Gray. We could we could like he we could dress him up like the Holy Grail and do a find the Holy Grail game. Where we just crawl around in the dark and tickle like, Jack. It's like hide and go seek. He has to hide, and then whoever finds him gets to drink from him. <laughs> that sounds like a deeply sounds like a Gnostic sex cult, right? Right there. <laughs> We're like in a, one of those Eastern Orthodox heretical sects. Uh, yeah. Putin was hanging out with. <laughs> oh my God! But you know, that's so. You said something interesting that makes me think. Like you know how conferences occur, and they're they're great fun. I got to present to a huge room on the Celtic mysteries um, in in San Jose at Pantheon. That was epic. I thought I was walking to a room. I thought there'd be like 10, 12 people in a circle, and there was like two hundred. I was like, what the fuck? And it was Pantheon, amazing. Like the largest. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. So, yeah. So six thousand people, and it was apparently the smallest year they'd ever had the year last year, the last one. It was the final one um, because the woman who runs it's old. And uh, someone else will do something else at the same time in the same place. But it was an epic. It was a crazy, crazy time. And I met a lot of awesome people. Got to hang out with like the Cisros and Ceylon again and just meet all kinds of people. And once I did my lecture, of course, though, I didn't have a moment alone. I was Every time I was alone, there, there was people waiting to just come talk to me. And so it was uh, pretty busy. I didn't attend really anything. I just prepped for my own thing, did my own lecture, and then was hanging out with people who wanted to talk after that and it was amazing just so many people but here's the thought you know you're talking about going on tour like a, a con you could have like a touring conference rather than just one big event that takes all this time and energy to set up you could have a group of people yeah exactly that going on this circuit tour conference bringing the conference to all these different places we could get a big crazy van with curtains in it just travel the country slash continent. I'm into it. I'll get a I'll get get myself a, a 71 Impala supernatural black car and drive around with the trunk full of tools. Oh, Do you want to know something kind of goofy? So I had never watched a single episode of Supernatural uh, when I met my wife. And uh, in it's fact, a fun I sort show. Of what's that? It's a fun show. It is now. Uh, I kind of despised it. All I knew about it was that my mother watched it. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm a punk guy, you know. But my wife showed it to me, and so I sort of, you know, kind of got into it. 
Uh, but every once in a while, when they would uh, like open up a book and uh, start like reading Enochian, uh, it used to drive me crazy because they would say that there was a certain language that they were speaking, but the language on the page was very clearly either not Enochian <laughs> or it was Coptic a lot of the times, or yeah. it would be Coptic imagery and they would be saying it was Enochian. And that used to drive me crazy because of course I can read, write and speak Coptic. Uh, and then I'm not that into Enochian, but I know a million people who are, you know, and I ended up writing a letter to them and sending it off, this self-righteous, nerdy letter. And then the show ended. And uh, <laughs> so I, uh, their, their, their Enochian expert actually might arguably know the, the most Enochian of, everyone, of anyone on the planet. But there was a communication breakdown between him putting together the sentences and the like props departments getting it right. And uh, yeah, Misha Collins... They have experts. You know, Misha, yeah, so they had an Anokian expert. Misha Collins, who played Castiel, he got together with me a couple of times uh, as a consultant and ran by me actually the whole finale of the show to see if it was sort of theologically sound, in my opinion. And we talked about a lot of other issues because he was doing some directing at that time. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was cool. That was very cool. And I have a whole website, a web page for film consulting work if you go to occult.consulting. And because um, Vancouver is a big film city, right? Like my magician, the magicians was filmed at my old seminary and and a university, and a lot of my friends are in it. And yeah, it's a big film town. We've all done a lot of film work. I did a little part and did some comp work, uh, music comp work for Red like Red Riding Hood with Gary Oldman, and uh, that stuff. If you're an artist in Vancouver, you you inevitably end up doing some film shit because it pays so well. You can't really say no to that, right? Like you got you got two weeks free for 10, 20 grand. It's like, yeah, yeah, I can make that work. Um, so yeah, uh, Supernatural was interesting though, because yeah, there was some miscommunication. They really needed someone like me on full time to help communicate between the guy who's doing the Enochian and the props departments and stuff like that. We could have tweaked the, the occultism in that show to be even better. And they're doing Sabrina here now. And I've talked to some friends who are on, on the show and uh, who knows, I would do it any time, of course, but it's hard to get, they, they like to just make shit up and they don't care about accuracy because I don't think they realize how many people study the occult and are actually looking at that stuff and would be more interested in the shows if they got at least the details right, let alone added in a little bit of nuance to make it uh, more, more deep, um, just make it, make the layers of meaning more deep with just a few little tweaks and changes to a show here and there. Although you gotta, you gotta admit though, if they were a little bit more accurate with their pronunciations and things like that, <laughs> uh, I mean, if you've ever read uh, like HP Lovecraft, <laughs> potentially opening realms to very dangerous and destructive forces on accident. Yeah, but those, they're all actors. They're all fucked anyway. They're all crazy. So Misha Collins consulted you regarding the finale. Yeah, we got together for, for Guinness a few times, and he ran by me the whole ending of the show. Now, this was uh, years ago, and the show deeply... actually ended up getting renewed, even though it was meant to end, and it did a few more years after that. So it wasn't the ending that just happened. It was the originally intended ending with God and the darkness going off. And, of yeah. course, the guy who plays God is you know, does a, has did a lot of music around town here. Jensen Ackles used to come to open mics and play his guitar back in the early days. I once got yeah. drunk and massaged both those guys' biceps a little bit too much when I was hammered. 
Oh wow! I got dude. They're the... so pretty in person. They look like gods in person. They're even shinier in real life, and they're super nice. I dare you to not That's touch their biceps. For a reason. Yeah, man. <laughs> they're they're giant, gorgeous gods, and super nice. What else do you want? I was extremely disappointed by the ending of the whole entire show. Well, I haven't I watched it yet, so I'm just starting that final, final, final season. Okay. Yeah, well, don't spoil I'll it for me. Where you probably want it to end. Well, it did. Yeah, so it, it, they had to make up a way to continue it after they intended to end it. So the the ending that I consulted on was was it, it went way beyond that after a couple more years because it was so popular and the actors both are best friends and, and didn't want it to end. They loved the idea of continuing it. Yeah. But I did. If they had ended it there, that would have been a very strong ending. Continuing beyond that point, it was definitely spinning their wheels. But I like the show, so I'm not arguing. Well, I was I was actually a little bit outraged by the actual ending of the show. Like the real, yeah. I'll, I'll have to watch it, and we'll talk about it when we do a follow up. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah don't say anything. Don't say anything. Oh my god! <laughs> we'll talk about it on peyote. Yeah. I tr I've tried to get into the final season, but it's just uh, I'm so busy, of course, trying to just keep things going that it's uh, hard to focus on a lot of fiction right now. With the pandemic happening, it's been very difficult to, I mean, I don't think I have ever been more productive, truly. I've written three quarters of a million words awesome. in just, over, just under two years. Uh, I have pitched and successfully gotten two classes going. I've started school again. Uh, it's very difficult to just sit down and watch any sort of television these days. Yeah, but, and you made a baby. And I made a baby. You made a person. Well, You're skipping out the probably the most magical and powerful thing you did, which you made a human being. What's kind of funny and actually sort of uh, kind of fits our topic of conversation here is we gave, there was a little bit of a difficulty, um, which turned out to be, you know, resolved itself my wife had to get an emergency cesarean blah 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 Oof. but when the baby actually came i had never held a newborn child and so i was still figuring out how to like do things you know like how to be a parent to a newborn child while we were at the hospital and i'm uh six and a half feet tall and most of what i talked about is some sort of ancient liturgical language or, you know, some just truly uh, something that is for a select crowd, I guess. Uh, but needless to say, the uh, completely 100% Catholic staff of the hospital in which my daughter was born was not so into me opening my mouth at all to say anything. <laughs> and uh, her first kind of big little baby freak out happened when we were still in the hospital my wife was healing up and uh i started chanting vowels to her and i put on sun Ra's god is more than love could ever be and uh she drifted off to sleep and the nurse came in and made a comment about it and uh i told her <laughs> i told her i used uh sorcery to put my child to sleep and she kind of chuckled and i didn't stop the explanation uh, and I started to explain to her the practice of <laughs> and she got very uncomfortable, turned around and left and sent another nurse in. I'm very fortunate to have the wife who kind of tells me when I'm being uh, um, off-putting. 
yeah even in walder school i got in trouble when people would catch me doing ritual work they're like you you can't do that where people can see you it's not uh, it's it's they, the one teacher said it was hubris i'm like well i thought i was alone on a secluded beach you know yeah and it's like come on too it's like yeah, i don't know if there's much value in um hiding our spirituality from people you know i don't know if that makes it better it makes it more sketchy in their eyes i think yeah people if you just tell them science and science is the occult just kind of a little bit more reliable for people who don't believe in the occult you know what i mean it's the same exact stuff just uh, a little bit more explainable sam jack and i because we live in the same city, we do a lot of stuff together or did before uh, COVID. But there's a beautiful prairie area that uh, we go out on at night and practice. And most of the time, we're the only people out there. But every once in a while, and it's almost always when we're in like the throes of true ecstasy and uh, if you've ever seen any sort of the public ritual stuff I do, I'm usually in costume. I've got a vest mask that I put on or an ibis mask. Um, so could you imagine this big giant guy speaking some language you don't know in the middle of the night? Uh, you just turn a corner in a park and all of a sudden I'm looming over you speaking in some strange language. Uh, it's both uh, hilarious and kind of unfortunate. A number of times we have just scared people um yeah it also does take you out of the moment when you're in the middle of it and then somebody just kind of awkwardly walking their dog scooches past you <laughs> yeah it's uh it's happened i i you know it's it's preferable to be left alone but sometimes people i'm planning a, a bit of graveyard work coming up with a few other magicians at a frater ahad's grave because it's just down the street and I, I used to go there and do ritual work uh, when I was in portal all the time I would go there and I'd invoke, I'd invoke Thoth first and then I'd uh, do a rosary um, to sort of uh, channel those energies um, yeah, well, a hermetic totally rosary and uh, then I would talk to spirits sorry yeah that's going to be one of the benefits of having this public uh, temple space is uh, I'll have a key to it we can get in and out whenever we want uh, there's a large fenced in backyard and we won't have to worry about anybody uh, seeing some, you know, light out in the woods and then tramping through to find out what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the advantage of orders and groups. Um, people have asked me before, like, what's the advantage of being in an order of having orders or groups? I'm like, well, we were able to put on week-long international events that cost people nothing, essentially, to attend, including we put up, we give get free accommodation for 100 plus people and they just have to get there and then a whole week of food and events and classes from you know 7 a.m till 3 a.m that's the advantage you can do in a group you know um and that's a real advantage whereas if you're all just a bunch of scattered independent people doing your own thing but trying to get along you don't really have the same resources and, and events then cost a lot more to put on yeah, well, again, it's that power of doing something in a group that, again, most of us won't experience. And uh, well, that's I think it's, it's kind of a duty to make it happen for people because it's a truly, it's a singular experience. Yeah, well, that's that's what's great that people like you are doing what you're doing. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I considered something like that, but then I realized maybe I'd be better, more helpful to the world by rather than building up another group is, is just trying to build bridges between groups, you know, and yeah. open dialogues like this. That's what we're doing. I mean, that's the whole idea of the podcast. It's like you said, taking something personal and putting it into our, into the work rather than do uh, serious, very serious occult talks, which is not, you know, I, I have, I like to have just real conversations. So it's fun to get a sense of knowing what the person would actually be like if you were hanging out with them at an event rather than just, what's their take on magic you know yeah so bringing the personality into the occult and and just a bit of the down-to-earth humanness that that is what you encounter when you really meet someone in real life um here is something like edit this out or whatever uh but i have to leave for work in about 12 minutes yeah yeah that's cool um, um do you yeah, want to wrap so up now or or yeah if you should, we, should we find a find some some little thing to say for the end this yeah. has been great okay before you go let me get your thoughts on aliens oh man aliens yeah bro what's your take on the whole alien noise going on last year and so oh you mean slow disclosure well that uh, and, like there's tons of hearings just here in dc where i live like there, there's tons of sightings there was a swarm that just swarmed like u.s navy vessels like it's all over the place. And then there's the, the orbs of light theory. There's the interdimensional theory. There's all these different theories. There's the glass, et cetera. What's your take? What's your take on aliens? Here's the thing. I told you in my kind of more mundane life, I'm a folklorist. Right. Part of that uh, gives me a reason to collect people's stories. And what's really kind of cool about that is while I am an eccentric guy, I'm pretty approachable for the most part. Uh, so people feel very comfortable opening up to me about seemingly very crazy things or things they are very uncomfortable talking about. Uh, but UFO sightings is actually one of those things. In the last, uh, let's see, about two years or so, I've collected 112 uh, UFO sightings in the American Midwest alone. Uh, so there is one, definitely something up there. But then on top of that, I know a lot of people in the Navy. And I know one person in the Navy who maintains if you're in the Navy long enough, you'll see some kind of a UFO. Mm. My initial response when somebody says something like they've seen a ghost, a UFO, anything like that, is to immediately believe them because you get a lot more out of the experience. Uh, but having said all of that, one thing I do believe is that... Uh, after experiencing all these people's stories, and then of course, all of the crazy experiences that I personally have had, um, that I have luckily, I've got a very, um, um, what's the word, a very level-headed wife. Uh, so if anything really crazy happens, if it can ruffle her feathers, I know that there's jelly in them donuts. Nice. And I've had some UFO stuff that has made her uncomfortable. She's, um, your, she's your bullshit tester, right? I like to say she's my connection to humanity. Um, <laughs> That's probably a nicer way to put it. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, UFOs are not only real, but they're completely a natural occurring phenomena. They are um, not from outer space necessarily, but just kind of from different parts of our uh, world. Um, there's a quote that I think is attributed to Paul Eluard. Uh, and W.B. Yeats, and probably a number of other people. No, I don't think anybody's really sure who said it initially. 
but it's there is another world, but it is in this one. Um, mm. If you've ever seen the movie Buckaroo Banzai, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's kind of that. Uh, because we are a cluster of non-physical atoms, and we're basically just uh, energy. Most of which these little uh, energy structures are just space. I think that uh, you can kind of pass through other uh, other bits of space that are contained within other structures. So I think these UFOs are something that we create with our mind. And I think that's why a lot of occultists experience these things. I think whenever there's something very big, like if you think of uh, like the Mothman phenomena in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, there, that was accompanied by all these uh, UFO sightings and things. I think that they're psychic. Um, this is actually a topic I can rant on and on about for hours. We'll have uh, to do a part two very soon. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't. I, I, I didn't suspect you actually had so much to say about this, and that's really awesome. I'm glad I touched on it because, yeah, let's 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 get into that next time. Maybe maybe Jack wants to pop relieved. on. Well, well, I will say Sam and Jack want to pop on. I will say they have been with me on a number of experiences. Um, they have witnessed a number of strange things happening in the sky. I think these things are way more normal than people are probably would probably expect. But I think people nowadays, especially, are more focused on what's going on, uh, like in their hands, than they are what's going on above their heads at the moment. So people are looking at phones instead of the strange lights in the sky. Uh, they certainly might be uh, unmanned drones, uh, but even that is kind of an interesting story because you know, who's controlling those drones? Yeah. And when they shoot lightning fast, well, what the hell? Yeah. But I do, uh, I maintain uh, sort of like an eighth tower, John Keel uh, sort of belief that uh, they are energy that we manipulate somehow with our minds and they're capable of doing the same thing. But they come from our world, just a different part of it. And huh. uh, I think it's an occult act to try to gain access to it as well. Yeah, I have some very cool things to say about that, but we will leave it till like next time. And if either of your friends want to come on, we could do like a three, four way, even like a little video round table. I know my listeners would love to, to hear more about this and hear from those people. So whatever you want to do, just let me know, man. But I'll definitely let you go to work and uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, to be continued on every subject we've touched on. What, uh, you're, you're a delightful guy, and I can't wait to uh, to get into some of this stuff more. It's cool that you're into Yates as well, and I loved, of course, what you said about that stuff. But let's uh, let's continue next time. Let me know. Yeah, well, I'm always down to talk about cryptids or UFOs. Uh, yeah, I'm actually wearing a T-shirt uh, that is UFO in nature, so I'm kind of relieved that we're not doing this face to face because I don't look occulty and professional at all um but then yeah likewise i've got another book out soon so i'm gonna have to plug that so all the more reason to come back on awesome well reverend zemi it's been a pleasure and you just let me know when you're ready and give a shout out give a shout to jack and uh your other friend and uh see what see what they want to do and uh yeah this is meant to be a place for fun and free-flowing explorations and conversations and craziness so uh use this platform as you will right on man and have a lovely day brother yeah 
May uh, Tehuti guide and bless your steps and speak truth through you at all times. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Peace. Adios. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk